Welcome to the Talks on Law MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. Well, why don't we transition into another important case? The case of Ahmed Arbery. Here we had a really terrifying to me, a terrifying case involving citizens arrest, involving the mess that happens when people think they should be doing something and believe they're armed and justified to do it. Perhaps, Daniel, maybe maybe could you explain a little bit what happened in the case? And then I want to talk about how, you know, this case, which seemed seemed like race was a, a factor, you know, race really wasn't discussed in the prosecution. Yeah. So Ahmad was running through a neighborhood in Georgia and three white men, for whatever reason, believed that he was up to no good. So they decided to take it upon themselves to stalk him, literally stalk him. They were in two separate cars, two men in one car, another man in another car, and they followed him. They cornered him and they confronted him and they ended up shooting him dead. And so, I mean, you call it a citizen's arrest. It sounds a lot like white vigilantism to me. And it was a case where, again, it's kind of this perception thing, right? Like what made Ahmad running through this neighborhood seem like something was amiss, right? And at that point, it's hard to kind of divorce race from the picture. And now that new details are coming out in the federal prosecution, uh, the, the individuals where they have a history of using kind of extreme racist language and kind of have a history of racism, it seems like that was very much the motivating factor in that case. But there, what the prosecution did, which I thought was very deft in terms of the jurisdiction, was the prosecution made the case about race without hitting the jury over the head with the fact that this case was all about race. So the prosecution that? So the prosecution emphasized, for example, the fact of so why did they think that Mr. Arbery was didn't belong in that neighborhood? Or why did they think that he had committed a crime when they had never encountered him before? So the prosecution planted the question without necessarily having to state the answer for the jury. The prosecutor let the jury reach their own conclusion about what happened there. And, and so, you know, it's, it's obviously it's tragic almost 10 years after Trayvon Martin's murder, where he was kind of stalked and murdered in the same way by a vigilante who took it upon himself to be the law and the executioner. But I do think it's a case that shows that being thoughtful about how you present the case to your jury can make all the difference in terms of whether you get a conviction or not. Many scholars believe that the reason why the prosecutors prevailed in this case was related to the citizen's arrest law. Would any of you like to handle that or explain what, you know, what factor was missing that prevented the defendants in that case from claiming that they were acting in a justified manner? So my understanding, it's somewhat limited, of Georgia's citizen's arrest law is that it directly stems from slave patrols. And it was passed, I want to say, right around prior to the Civil War on the emancipation of enslaved people. But it, it allowed 
you know, basically non-law enforcement. And law enforcement's a relatively recent phenomenon. The first municipal police department was in the early 1830s in Boston. You had a federal sort of law enforcement, but it really didn't develop until, you know, the late 1800s, uh, early 1900s in most communities. And so you have this sort of patchwork of really deputized private citizens that had the authority to detain people and to use sort of force necessary to detain people. What did happen after Mr. Arbery's murder is that Georgia repealed their citizen's arrest law. They have now added a hate crime statute where they did not have one before, which is why you didn't have that as a potential charge in state court. And you have this separate federal proceeding that does have hate crime legislation. But it was it, the use of force was was unreasonable relative to the perceived sort of threat of uh, the McMichaels and Mr. Bryan. So these are the three individuals that Daniel described. They were, as Daniel mentioned, stalking him with two pickup trucks and a 12 gauge shotgun. And the perception is that he possibly had you know, trespassed in a construction site, a vacant home that was under construction. And the, uh, the use of a 12 grade shotgun doesn't you know, match that perception of threat. And so uh, that, didn't, that wouldn't have carried the day with really any jury selected in New Brunswick you know, in, in 2020. I think it was very, very clear. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, the, the law, which as you mentioned, is no longer in place, required that they have seen the actual felony take place. And uh, the individuals in this case had not seen a felony committed. So they, they couldn't take advantage of that, of that law. You know, I want to circle back to something that we mentioned earlier, Daniel, which was the prior acts and how prior acts are used in these types of cases. Would you mind kind of threading that? Uh, I mean, we talked a little bit about it with George Floyd, but could you relate it to some of the other cases? Yeah. So I guess the question is, how much does one person's kind of previous actions, how much should they matter in a criminal trial where presumably we care about the facts of that case, the facts of that incident, and whether somebody is guilty of a crime or not? So Kyle Rittenhouse, for example, look, not too long before he went to the protest in Kenosha, had said outside of a CVS he wished he had his AR-15 to shoot shoplifters at, or who he perceived to be shoplifters at a CVS. That didn't come in before the jury. We talked about George Floyd's prior arrest where Officer Chauvin wanted to point out that Mr. Floyd had called out for his mom and had ingested drugs before that arrest a year prior. Um, and that was only allowed in for a limited circumstance. And same thing with Mr. Arbery's case where they wanted to point out that he had prior run-ins with law enforcement. And there the judge said, look, that really has no relevance to the question at hand. What you're trying to do is make Mr. Arbery out to be a bad person but whether or not you're a bad person isn't supposed to be the subject matter of a criminal trial. It is really about the actions and whether they were justified or lawful at the time. So it really kind of raises this question of, well, should past acts come in? When should they come in? How should they come in? And I mean, usually they shouldn't under kind of circumscribed circumstances. But yet we saw in both the George Floyd case and in the Maude Aubrey case or in their killings, the prosecution of their murderers, um, where the defense part of it was to paint them out to be bad people. 
but that isn't or it shouldn't be a defense under the law. We were just talking about Ahmed Aubrey. You know, something recently came up in that case where a plea deal was reached and then it was rejected. For many of us, that left a left left me a little confused. What happened there? Why was this plea deal considered inappropriate? So uh, specifically in this case, and I would love to pivot to Rachel for plea negotiations that the Department of Justice makes more generally. But in this case specifically, the three individuals, the McMichaels and Brian, are facing hate crime charges. They have already been convicted and sentenced in state court for the murder. All of them received life sentences to be served in a state facility. And under the federal charges, um, they were looking at a term of years. And so I want to say it was approximately 30 years. And under the agreement, they would serve that time in a federal facility. They would also, on the record, in federal court, make clear that racism, anti-Black racism, motivated their actions. And the Department of Justice and Defense Counsel for the McMichaels, this was the father and son, uh, Travis and Gregory, agreed to that. And when they brought before the judge, you had Mr. Arbery's mother make clear that she was not on board with this agreement. One of the reasons, and she may have multiple reasons, one of the reasons is that she didn't want the McMichaels to spend their incarceration in a federal facility, which the perception there that it was relatively better than the state facility. These are still prisons, but that was the perception. And she was vocal about her you know, disagreement with the, with the plea agreement that had been reached between, again, the Department of Justice and defense counsel and the defendants. And so the judge actually rejected that agreement. And in federal court, judges must approve plea agreements, most of them, there there are some caveats, but the court generally has to be in agreement. And so there the court rejected the agreement. And that's why we now have a trial. And so Daniel's already mentioned some of the details that have come out in the opening statements of the federal trial, which the Department of Justice made clear that the McMichaels regularly used explicit racial, racist epithets to refer to Black people, animal descriptions, Brian did as well, Mr. Brian. And so we're getting the kind of explicit language that we didn't hear about in the state prosecution for exactly the reasons that that Daniel mentioned. Is it normal that a family member, you know, here it's the mother, would have any authority or, or would have the ability to weigh in on punishment? I would love to pivot to Rachel on that, on who can participate in the conversations when the Department of Justice, when federal prosecutors are making arrangements for flu negotiations. So prosecutors solicit and are expected to solicit input from victims and their families, but the victims and their families don't control the day necessarily because prosecutors are supposed to make the decisions in the interests of justice, not, and that doesn't always mean what the victims or the victims' families want. So normally it would be practice. And I think it, it was, there was consultation in this case, but in the end there was disagreement and the judge has discretion to reject the plea agreement based on that 
disagreement or uh, based on other factors that he thinks makes it not in the interests of justice. Rachel, when we were talking about this earlier, this this relates to the pettit or petite policy. Maybe what am I saying it right or wrong or what is it? It spells petite and it's usually said pettit. The that is part of a more general issue, which is people wonder why was this prosecuted under state law and now being prosecuted also by the federal government? And the same question came up in the George Floyd case involving Derek Chauvin. Why was he prosecuted by the federal government as well as the state government? And it's true that many hate crimes and incidents of police violence frequently violate both state and federal law, sometimes different laws. So in Georgia, there was no hate crime, but it violated other violent crime statutes. Sometimes it's the same type of law, but either way, the federal government and the state government both get to enforce their own laws. And it is not double jeopardy to prosecute the same individuals, even for the same activities in these two different courts. But it rarely comes to that. Ordinarily, defendants aren't prosecuted by both the state and federal government. The federal government has this policy, the Pettit policy, which applies to all crimes that traditionally suggests that the federal government should not prosecute. If this is an internal policy at the Justice Department, it doesn't have You can't sue when they violate this policy, but it's the policy of the Justice Department not to initiate a federal prosecution if states have already prosecuted it, even if there's no conviction, unless certain conditions exist. And in particular, it has to be a matter of substantial federal interest, and that would include a crime of national significance in, in these crimes prior prosecution has to have left that federal interest unvindicated, and the government has to believe that they have admissible evidence that will be sufficient to sustain a prosecution, a conviction, which is exactly what they would need in any case. And so the PETA policy allows the Justice Department to bring a prosecution, even if the states have already prosecuted. It doesn't require that the states go first, but that's the usual practice because it's the easiest way to implement the policy. But that's often a subject of negotiation. And in some of these cases, that's what you're seeing. And this was uh, famously done in the beating of Rodney King. The state failed to get any convictions regarding the beating of Rodney King. And then the Justice Department Civil Rights Division, along with the U.S. Attorney's Office, came in and prosecuted the officers again and received two convictions in that case. And the same thing happened in Walter Scott's shooting in yes. North Charleston, South Carolina, the local state prosecutors, the grand jury indicted, they had a state trial, it ended in a mistrial without a conviction. And then the federal government came in, prosecuted. Michael Slager was the police officer there, former police officer. And he actually pled guilty and received a 20 year sentence in federal prison because for lots of reasons, the state, the state process didn't bring about a conviction. Alexis is exactly right. And you can see that practice is often to defer to the states because in many ways it vindicates the respect for the victim and and local interests to have a state take seriously serious crimes. 
But the reason that the Justice Department Civil Rights Division exists is because sometimes unpopular minorities don't have their interests vindicated at the local or state level. And this is a check on ensuring that our national values are vindicated in criminal prosecutions. It came out of Reconstruction. Right after the Civil War, you had Black people being uh, maimed, assaulted, raped, murdered with impunity. And there was no forum in which that they could seek relief. There was no sort of local court where they could they could ask for equal protection of the laws. And so you had the 39th Congress come up with these expansive rights enforcement acts, civil rights acts at the federal level so that federal prosecutors, the Department of Justice could could file both criminal and civil cases against people that violated the rights of, of Black people. The federal courts weren't great at uh, really respecting and upholding those, those measures, but this is, this is exactly what Rachel is talking about. It's, it's the, these are this mechanism, this parallel system of seeking, seeking justice is born out of, of Reconstruction. So that, I mean, that's a bit about the, the DOJ or the, the you know, federal justice as a safeguard, but you're also pointing to something else that's, that seems very important, which is the importance and the power of public pressure. Uh, Daniel, maybe could you speak to this? I mean, do you need public support to get a conviction in these types of controversial cases? I mean, should we need public support? I think the answer is no. Um, is Was public support immensely important to how the cases were charged and prosecuted and the care with which they were reviewed? Of, of course, right? Like. It can't be lost on the, like, it can't be lost that Ahmaud Arbery's killers might not have been prosecuted at all, save for the fact that there was public outcry. George Floyd's case may have looked very different if the state attorney general didn't get involved, which he might not have, but for the public outcry. So it, it, it certainly matters. Should it matter? No, but... It also, it gets the government's attention, the federal government's attention. And you can think there are all kinds of structural mechanisms why local prosecutions may fail, right? These local prosecutors have relationships with police officers. They rely on their work. It's, it's hard. Like, it's just like structurally, it's difficult for these local prosecutors to prosecute the people they have to work hand in hand with to do their job. And so in those situations, it's really important to have our federal government there as a backstop, right? to ensure that our national interests are being vindicated in these really egregious cases and to ensure that people know that this is the type of crime that if the states don't get it right, our federal government will. And so I hope we get away from the fact, I hope killings don't have to be on video to get a a prosecution or a conviction. I hope there don't need to be mass protests or public outcry to get a prosecution or conviction. But at least for now, we know it it, it, it certainly helps in terms of the cases being brought in the first place. Quick break for the MCLE code. The code for this interview is 072616. Again, that's 072616. And now back to the interview. Rachel, when you were at uh, Justice, did you see 
public pressure or notoriety of a case play a role in decisions whether or not to prosecute? No, I certainly think that the decisions whether to prosecute or not got more scrutiny um, when there was enormous public pressure. But one thing that's different about the civil rights division from a local prosecutor's office is that a local prosecutor's office doesn't do a lot of these cases. They do a lot of other things and then are forced to make a hard decision with respect to one case. When you're talking about the civil rights division, this is what they do. So screening these cases isn't is it's just a very different enterprise uh, when you have that distance, both physically and, and psychologically from the officers and the departments that you're evaluating. You know, we've been talking a lot about criminal prosecution and criminal prosecutions are important because they show a kind of respect for the citizenship and victims that other remedies don't show. But one of the things you're hearing is that criminal prosecutions are within the power of governments to decide. And when people are thinking about the kinds of questions that are in the news about policing, they might wonder why is qualified immunity, this technical doctrine so important? And, uh, and why are people so upset about it? And one of the reasons is because civil suits for damages are one of the few levers that individual victims and their families can trigger without the government sign off. You don't get to try to exclude evidence unless the government prosecutes you. You can't, a perpetrator can't be prosecuted without the government's say so. But civil damages actions can be brought by victims without that. And that's one of the reasons why you hear a lot of attention to civil damages actions, as well as these criminal prosecutions. Yeah, that private right of action to, to enact a 1983 lawsuit, again, is, is born out of Reconstruction, the Ku Klux Klan Act of, of 1871. And it was really to allow the federal courthouse doors to be open to individuals to seek a remedy against people who had violated their rights. And I know Daniel and his students work on these cases regularly, where a, a pathway to remedy, which was developed in the wake of the Civil War, has been really cut off at the knees through qualified immunity, which is this judicially created affirmative defense, you know, that's been on the, you know, around for maybe 40 odd, odd years. I want to circle back to something that we mentioned, you know, when I was doing some research on the no-knock warrants, I saw some horrible cases um, that I hadn't even heard of. You know, someone threw a flashbang grenade into a, a baby's crib. Maybe would someone like to jump in and share about, I guess, how some of these horrible things can, can actually be mundane in our judicial system sometimes? If you just think about warrants being executed generally, even if nobody ends up dead, right, which most of the times they don't, there is still tremendous trauma in terms of police entering your house without notice or even entering your house with notice. Properties often destroyed. Pets are sometimes killed. Your child may be handcuffed in front of you or you may be handcuffed in front of your child. And so those are all indignities that happen every day as a result of our system. Traffic stops. When we think about folks who are traffic who are stopped, maybe not even charged with anything, like that stop is traumatic. If you think about people who are stopped and frisked, like frisk sounds gentle, 
but it's really invasive. And those are the types of things where even if it doesn't end up in a prosecution, a civil suit really is hard to bring and doesn't make that much sense given the amount of time and energy and money uh, that you may have to expend to bring a civil suit for those kind of mundane encounters with police officers. So it's really, it's really easy to forget the fact that policing is bigger than and abuse of policing is much bigger than like the most tragic cases. And that there are affronts on dignity that happen every single day, all the time that are routine and for a lot of people and in a lot of communities that we should be equally concerned about because our rights should matter equally everywhere for everyone, right? And so I do think it's really important to keep in mind that we want to make sure as we're thinking about policing and how to make it better, that we wanna make it better for everyone in every circumstance and not just avoiding the most extreme outcomes uh, in any given case. Just to follow up on Daniel's point, I, I think one of the things his answer suggests is that it's actually not just abusive or unlawful policing that imposes harms on individuals. Lawful policing, when police officers are doing their jobs, when they're arresting people who've committed crimes, when they're stopping and frisking people who are suspicious, those when they're using force to overcome low-level resistance, all of those activities impose harm and costs. And when we think about the criminal justice system, we have to internalize those costs. We have to think about um, whether our goals are worth it and whether the ways we're achieving those goals are the most cost efficient ways of achieving them, because even lawful policing can be harmful. And in, there's been so much attention on deadly force in the last several years that we really have lost sight of the fact that that is a very, very small proportion of the force that officers use and that non-deadly force imposes harm as well. Maybe, you know, you're talking about qualified immunity and we've, we've spoken about, you know, some of the other areas where the, you know, the criminal justice system can lead to unjust outcomes. Are there some good movement? Is, is criminal justice, are there reforms that you've seen that are actually making a difference out there on these types of issues? Well, we've seen so much reform in the last 18 months that it's hard to say what the consequences of all that reform are yet. But there have been nearly 3,500 policing-related reform bills between George Floyd's death in May of 2020 and the end of 2021. And nearly 500 of them became law. And many of the rest have been reintroduced in 2022. So you're going to see more reform still. And in those, you're talking about half of more than half of states have either restricted chokeholds or otherwise refined use of force standards. States have created duties to intervene, a duty to report excessive force. They've increased data collection, transparency, civilian input, the possibility of civilian oversight. They've required body-worn cameras. Most states have added new training. That's de-escalation, crisis intervention, bias reduction, duty to intervene. I mean, we're really talking about a ton of action at the state level. And so traditionally, we have looked to the federal government, and for good reason, as a check on some of the excesses of policing. But right now, 
there is a ton of energy and a commitment at the state and local level. The states and localities are the ones who empower and fund and govern police departments, and they have the most power to change them. I, I think communities are already engaging in this project, and I expect a lot more of that to come. And I, I think that's the power of protest, right? And activism. It's not just getting prosecutions, but it's changing the way we police, period. And we're having these types of conversations with groups. I mean, regular folks are on the street talking about qualified immunity when a few years ago, most people would be like, what is qualified immunity? So, I mean, the fact that these conversations are happening on a mass scale is only going to be, I hope, that it leads to positive changes in how police interact with citizens because citizens care more, they're invested more, they're talking and pushing more. Um, and so to the extent protests don't lead to a prosecution, it doesn't mean that protests don't have the power to enact real change. We're starting to hear that there may be another way of addressing harm and the call to defund the police, which the second part of that is justice reinvestment. So take, take funding away from police, stop militarizing police, Rachel talked about this, and reinvest it in uh, social programming that can actually address the underlying causes of harm, which is when people you know, have uh, lack access to basic needs, housing, education, um, healthcare, let's pour resources into there that we take away from funding police departments. And so I, I find that there's a, a much greater understanding to underlying causes of harm today than we had, say, 30 years ago during the height of you know, three strikes, you're out, harsh punishments, throw the book at, at people. People are bad. They do bad things. Well, now it's like, ah, you know, hurt people, uh, hurt people. And, and let's address some of these, these underlying issues, and then maybe we won't have to rely on prosecution and incarceration to keep people safe. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Talks on Law MCLE podcast.